This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Utopia of Usurers by G. K. Chesterton. Section 7 Liberalism a Sample. There is a certain daily paper in England towards which I feel very much as Tom Pinch felt toward Mr. Pecksniff immediately after he had found him out. The war upon Dickens was part of the general war on all Democrats about the 80s and 90s, which ushered in the brazen plutocracy of today. And one of the things that it was fashionable to say of Dickens in drawing-rooms was that he had no subtlety and could not describe a complex frame of mind like most other things that are said in drawing-rooms it was a lie dickens was a very unequal writer and his successes alternate with his failures but his successes are subtle quite as often as they are simple thus to take martin chuzzlewit alone i should call the joke about the lord nozu a simple joke but i should call the joke about mrs todger's vision of a wooden leg a subtle joke and no frame of mind was ever so self-contradictory and yet so realistic as that which Dickens describes when he says in effect that though Pinch knew now that there had never been such a person as Pecksniff in his ideal sense, he could not bring himself to insult the very face and form that had contained that legend. The parallel with liberal journalism is not perfect, because it was once honest, and Pecksniff presumably never was. And even when I come to feel a final incompatibility of temper, Pecksniff was not so Pecksniffian as he has since become. But the comparison is complete in so far as I share all the reluctance of Mr. Pinch. Some old heathen king was advised by one of the Celtic saints, I think, to burn what he had adored, and adore what he had burnt. I am quite ready, if any one will prove I was wrong, to adore what I have burnt, but I do really feel an unwillingness, verging upon weakness, to burning what I have adored. I think it is a weakness to be overcome in times as bad as these, when, as Mr. Orage wrote with something like splendid common sense the other day, there is such a lot to do, and so few people who will do it. So I will devote this article to considering one case of the astounding baseness to which liberal journalism has sunk. Mental Breakdown in Fleet Street One of the two or three streaks of light on our horizon can be perceived in this, that the moral breakdown of these papers has been accompanied by a mental breakdown also. The contemporary official paper, like the Daily News or the Daily Chronicle, I mean in so far as it deals with politics, simply cannot argue, and simply does not pretend to argue, it considers the solution which it imagines that wealthy people want, and it signifies the same in the usual manner, which is not by holding up its hand, but by falling on its face. But there is no more curious quality in its degradation than a sort of carelessness, at once of hurry and fatigue, with which it flings down its argument, or rather its refusal to argue. It does not even write a sophistry. It writes anything. 
it does not so much poison the reader's mind as simply assume that the reader hasn't got one for instance one of these papers printed an article on sir stuart samuel who having broken the great liberal statute against corruption will actually perhaps be asked to pay his own fine in spite of the fact that he can well afford to do so the article says if i remember aright that the decision will cause general surprise and some indignation that any modern government making a rich capitalist obey the law will cause general surprise may be true whether it will cause general indignation rather depends on whether our social intercourse is entirely confined to park lane or any such pigsties built of gold but the journalist proceeds to say his neck rising higher and higher out of his collar and his hair rising higher and higher on his head in short his resemblance to the dickens original increasing every instant that he does not mean that the law against corruption should be less stringent but that the burden should be borne by the whole community this may mean that whenever a rich man breaks the law all the poor men ought to be made to pay his fine but i will suppose a slightly less insane meaning i will suppose it means that the whole power of the commonwealth should be used to prosecute an offender of this kind that of course can only mean that the matter will be decided by that instrument which still pretends to represent the whole power of the commonwealth in other words the government will judge the government now this is a perfectly plain piece of brute logic we need not go into the other delicious things in the article as when it says that in old times parliament had to be protected against royal invasion by the man in the street parliament has to be protected now against the man in the street parliament is simply the most detested and most detestable of all our national institutions all that is evident enough what is interesting is the blank and staring fallacy of the attempted reply when the journalist is ruined a long while ago before all the liberals died a liberal introduced a bill to prevent parliament being merely packed with the slaves of financial interests for that purpose he established the excellent democratic principle that the private citizen as such might protest against public corruption he was called the common informer i believe the miserable party papers are really reduced to playing on the degradation of the two words in modern language now the word common in common informer means exactly what it means in common sense or book of common prayer or above all in house of commons it does not mean anything low or vulgar any more than they do the only difference is that the house of commons really is low and vulgar and the common informer isn't it is just the same with the word informer it does not mean spy or sneak it means one who gives information it means what journalist ought to mean the only difference is that the common informer may be paid if he tells the truth the common journalist will be ruined if he does now the quite plain point before the party journalist is this if he really means that a corrupt bargain between a government and a contractor ought to be judged by public opinion he must nowadays mean parliament that is the caucus that controls parliament and he must decide between one of two views either he means that there can be no such thing as a corrupt government 
or he means that it is one of the characteristic qualities of a corrupt government to denounce its own corruption. I laugh, and I leave him his choice. THE FATIGUE OF FLEET STREET Why is the modern party political journalism so bad? Is it worse even than it intends to be? It praises its preposterous party leaders through thick and thin, but it somehow succeeds in making them look greater fools than they are. This clumsiness clings even to the photographs of public men as they are snapshotted at public meetings. A sensitive politician, if there is such a thing, would, I should think, want to murder the man who snapshots him at those moments. For our general impression of a man's gesture or play of feature is made up of a series of vanishing instants, at any one of which he may look worse than our general impression records. Mr. Augustine Birrell may have made quite a sensible and amusing speech, in the course of which his audience would hardly have noticed that he resettled his necktie. Snapshot him, and he appears as convulsively clutching his throat in the agonies of strangulation, and with his head twisted on one side as if he had been hanged. Sir Edward Carson might make a perfectly good speech, which no one thought wearisome, but might himself be just tired enough to shift from one leg to the other. Snapshot him, and he appears as holding one leg stiffly in the air and yawning enough to swallow the audience. But it is the prose narratives of the press that we find most manifestations of this strange ineptitude, this knack of exhibiting your own favorites in an unlucky light. It is not so much that the party journalists do not tell the truth as that they tell just enough of it to make it clear that they are telling lies. One of their favorite blunders is an amazing sort of bathos. They begin by telling you that some statesman said something brilliant in style or biting in wit at which his hearers thrilled with terror or thundered with applause. And then they tell you what it was he said. Silly asses. Insane Exaggeration Here is an example from a leading liberal paper touching the debates on home rule. I am a home ruler, so my sympathies would be, if anything, on the side of the liberal paper upon that point. I merely quote it as an example of this ridiculous way of writing which, by insane exaggeration, actually makes its hero look smaller than he is. This was strange language to use, about the hypocritical sham, and Mr. Asquith, knowing that the biggest battle of his career was upon him, hit back without mercy. I should like first to know, he said, with a glance at his supporters, whether my proposals are accepted. That's all and I really do not see why poor Mr. Asquith should be represented as having violated the Christian virtue of mercy by saying that. I myself could compose a great many paragraphs upon the same model, each containing its stinging and perhaps unscrupulous epigram. As, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury, realizing that his choice now lay between denying God and earning the crown of martyrdom by dying in torments, spoke with a frenzy of religious passion that might have seemed fanatical under circumstances less intense. The children's service, he said firmly, with his face to the congregation, will be held at half-past four this afternoon, as usual. Or we might have Lord Roberts, recognizing that he had now to face Armageddon, and that if he lost his last battle against overwhelming odds, the independence of England would be extinguished forever, addressed to his soldiers 
looking at them and not falling off his horse, a speech which brought their national passions to boiling point, and might well have seemed bloodthirsty in quieter times. It ended with the celebrated declaration that it was a fine day. Or we might have the much greater excitement of reading something like this. The Astronomer Royal, having realized that the Earth would certainly be smashed to pieces by a comet, unless his requests in connection with wireless telegraphy were seriously considered, gave an address at the Royal Society, which under other circumstances would have seemed unduly dogmatic and emotional and deficient in scientific agnosticism. This address, which he delivered without any attempt to stand on his head, included a fierce and even ferocious declaration that it is generally easier to see the stars by night than by day. Now I cannot see on my conscience and reason that any one of my imaginary paragraphs is more ridiculous than the one real. Nobody can believe that Mr. Asquith regards these belated and careful compromises about home rule as the biggest battle of his career. It is only justice to him to say that he has had bigger battles than that. Nobody can believe that anybody of men, bodily present, either thundered or thrilled at a man merely saying that he would like to know whether his proposals were accepted. No, it would be far better for Parliament if its doors were shut again and reporters were excluded. In that case, the outer public did hear genuine rumors of almost gigantic eloquence, such as that which has perpetuated Pitt's reply against the charge of youth, or Fox's bludgeoning of the idea of war as a compromise. It would be much better to follow the old fashion, and to let in no reporters at all, than to follow the new fashion, and select the stupidest reporters you can find. Their Load of Lies Now why do people in Fleet Street talk such tosh? People in Fleet Street are not fools. Most of them have realized reality through work, some through starvation, some through damnation, or something damnably like it. I think it is simply and seriously true that they are tired of their job. As the general said in Monsieur Rostand's play, La Fatigue, I do really believe that this is one of the ways in which God, don't get flurried, nature if you like, is unexpectedly avenged on things infamous and unreasonable. And this method is that men's moral and even physical tenacity actually give out under such a load of lies. They go on writing their leading articles and their parliamentary reports. They go on doing it as a convict goes on picking oakum. But the point is not that we are bored with their articles. The point is that they are. The work is done worse because it is done weakly and without human enthusiasm. And it is done weakly because of the truth we have told so many times in this book, that it is not done for monarchy, for which men will die, or for democracy, for which men will die, or even for aristocracy, for which many men have died. It is done for a thing called capitalism, which stands out quite clearly in history in many curious ways. But the most curious thing about it is that no man has loved it, and no man died for it. THE AMNESTY FOR AGGRESSION if there is to rise out of all this red ruin something like a republic of justice, it is essential that our views should be real views, that is, glimpses of lives and landscapes outside ourselves. 
it is essential that they should not be mere opium visions that begin and end in smoke and so often in cannon smoke i make no apology therefore for returning to the purely practical and realistic point i urged last week the fact that we shall lose everything we might have gained if we lose the idea that the responsible person is responsible for instance it is almost specially so with the one or two things in which the british government or the british public really are behaving badly the first and worst of them is the non-extension of the moratorium or truce of debtor and creditor to the very world where there are the poorest debtors and the cruelest creditors this is infamous and should be if possible more infamous to those who think the war right than to those who think it wrong everyone knows that the people who can least pay their debts are the people who are always trying to among the poor a payment may be as rash as a speculation among the rich a bankruptcy may be as safe as a bank considering the class from which private soldiers are taken there is an atrocious meanness in the idea of buying their blood abroad while we sell their sticks at home the english language by the way is full of delicate paradoxes we talk of the private soldiers because they are really public soldiers and we talk of the public schools because they are really private schools anyhow the wrong is the sort that ought to be resisted as much in war as in peace End of section seven.